VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I have this unique opportunity to do something I truly believe in. And I think that's the only reason I'm still alive. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. I hope you had a fabulous and a restful Christmas and New Year. I did and didn't. Uh, we had 19 people in our house for Christmas, which was wild. Our house is very average size, so everyone was on top of each other, but a good time was had by all, and then everyone left, which meant the house was eerily quiet, and that allowed us to recover, catch up on our laundry, and get ready for 2020. And here we are, your first episode of the new year of the new decade. And it's a good one. We have Vivian Ming on the show. And Ming is a theoretical neuroscientist. She is an expert in AI. She started a few companies, including Sokos Labs, which is a Berkeley think tank slash AI development lab, which is what she runs now. And she has opinions, lots of them. And we cover a lot of ground here. So we talk about the good, bad, and ugly of AI, more things are going right and terribly wrong. We talk about why she turned down a job at Amazon. Talk about the future of the human race, because why not? And we also get into Ming's personal story, which which is really quite harrowing. She is transgender, formerly homeless, and got very close to suicide. But now, these days, she flies around the world advising companies and politicians on AI policy and builds new AI tools that she gives away for free. It is a fascinating conversation with a fascinating person, and it will give you a lot to think about, trust me. So, without further ado, here is Vivian Ming. Enjoy. I read not to jump right into things, Mm. but uh, I was just in D.C. at the Urban Institute's 50th uh, anniversary 
and we were talking about AI. What are the big technologies? How will it affect policy? It's one of the things that I don't think has really come up that much. There was a working group there. David Artur, the um, uh, MIT economist, was mm. leading the working group, and we were all getting together to talk about how AI can attack inequality and discrimination and hiring. Oh, the good, the good side. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, people invite me because I think they perceive the work I do as good, and then I come and rant and rave and because this truth is it's all complex and it's all messy. Yeah. The interesting thing about that group was one of the policies they wanted to put forward as a recommendation is make certain that the people building this stuff, um, kids in engineering school and computer science schools, are getting ethics training so they understand the implications of what they're doing. I wish I could have flipped my day for reasons that will come apparent in a moment. Okay. Uh, but in that moment, as the people discussing it, and myself being the only person that actually builds machine learning systems in the room of some very powerful people, I said, you know, I got to be honest that much as I agree that there is a real problem with a bunch of very smart young men probably not fully, fully appreciating the implications of the work that they're doing, they are very smart. And in my experience as students at Stanford and at Berkeley, they're very thoughtful about these things. You have to appreciate ethics training in business school hasn't suddenly made the business world a profoundly ethical place. I wish... I'd had one further experience because that night at Dulles, I got sexually assaulted by some drunk guy no who way. then later on discovery, uh, because he, he got arrested, studied religion at Princeton. So it turns out the things we study may not in fact define whether we do good in this world. And the tools we build are just tools, and it's what we do with them that really counts. Well, it's funny you mentioned ethics because I went and spent the day at Stanford, the launch of the Human-Centered AI Institute. They call it HI, H-A-I. And it was a lot of very worthy, we've got to integrate ethics from the very beginning, et cetera. But I kind of left and I was like, felt like it was there was a lot of good intention there, but I was, I was, I was a little bit like, where's the beef? I think... Rather bluntly, it's just a lot of empty nonsense. A better way of thinking about it is the way most young computer science, machine learning students learn their craft, if you will, is they go and do a PhD somewhere. And that group at Stanford is co-founded by Fei-Fei Li. She mm -hmm. put together ImageNet. You know, this giant database of all of these images, which has become a standard. Probably most notorious is, for example, I think maybe it's ICLM. One of the big machine learning conferences uh, has a, an annual competition to um, see whether whose AI can recognize the most dog breeds. Something that it turns out humans aren't all that good at because who cares? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's become a bit of a big deal. So you might spend five, six years doing a PhD in which someone gave you ImageNet and says, you know, what I'm looking for in three years, I want to improve on our dog breed recognition on the ImageNet ground truth data set by a quarter of a percent. And that, you know, that'll be your big chunk of your dissertation. That's realistically a thing someone would work on. Uh, very much a thing someone would work on. If not that, you know, you could work in computational linguistics, you could work in sound, which yeah. is what I did way back when. But essentially, someone gives you a giant, perfect database. 
a completely articulately formed question to answer and truth, what this dog breed actually is. And you spend six years learning how to finely tune some deep neural network to get that extra quarter of percent accuracy. And it may sound like I'm trivializing all of this, and I appreciate good basic science and basic engineering work. What I'm concerned about is these largely men, definitely young, are spending their entire very brief careers learning how to build ever more sophisticated hammers. They've never built a home in their whole life. We're expecting them to build civilization. I'm not talking about someone from a school you've never heard of that maybe doesn't really understand their stuff. I'm talking about a top-tier Stanford, MIT. They were trained to do this, and they do it as well as anyone in the world. And then Amazon hires them and gives them a problem. Here's all of our hiring history data. Who is likely to get a promotion within their I first know the year? Answer. I know uh, the answer to this yes. question. So they're being given the same sort of thing, a big perfect data set, an explicit question, and a truth set, a criterion function. Except it's not a big perfect data set. It's a messy, ugly data set with all of Amazon's bad hiring history embedded in it. And it turns out it is not an unambiguous question at all. And shock of all shocks, as I'm sure you already know, it won't hire women. I'm sure wasn't so keen on hiring black people also, I'm willing to guess. Here's the personal kicker to it. I told them it wouldn't work. They tried oh, really? to hire me as their chief scientist for people. I was very flattered. It was the best pitch. It was in seven years, we will be a one million person company and your job will be to make their life better. And Whoa. after having a one million person company, that's yeah, crazy. They're well on their way. Oh, too. I know. They've got five hundred thousand now or something. Oh, over. Oh, they're they're heading uh, quickly towards eight hundred. Appreciate most of these are part of the logistics operation yeah. and warehousing and so forth. You know, when Uber asked me if I wanted to be their chief scientist, I said, "Hell no." Now at this point, even with their fizzled IPO, I can honestly say, you cannot pay me ten million dollars to be alone in a room with Travis Kalanick. And I can mean that. <laughs> but this was this was awesome. I could get Amazon as mm. my crazy mad science lab. Yeah. And that's what they wanted. Then I got a tour through what they wanted me to do, which I do believe they believe. Which is? They are virulently anti-union. I have ambivalent feelings about it, but I have never interacted with a place which was more concerned with this. I think they've fundamentally believe that the vast majority of that, let's call it secondary workforce, all the logistics and warehousing, that people like that can't change and can't grow, or at least they do not Mm. want to own any responsibility for it. So part of my job would to make people like that happily want to leave after a couple of years. If they have no prospect of a promotion, and, and again, if all they're going to do is eventually suffer some injury and, you know, there's a threat of a lawsuit, hey, let's give them a nice parting gift and leave on our terms, but exactly when we think is right. So my feeling in my work is everybody can change. So I offered to do the job for free. I don't really need the money. The reason I flew up there is the idea that I can make a million people's lives better. If I get two years with, let's say, 80% of that workforce to try and Mm. pull them 
out of a warehouse and up into the let's call it creative economy of yeah. Amazon, what an opportunity! Even with a one percent hit rate, you might change the life of thousands of people. And they were not interested at all. <laughs> so as you get the feeling, I have a very different yeah feeling about and that. This that sort of that work. example you're referring to around the kind of the algorithm, the hiring algorithm. Yeah, that famously was like, oh, so turns out the best employees are white guys. Yeah, shock of all shocks. I think the most underreported part of that story is where do you think the algorithm learned that from? From the data set? Exactly. It, they look like a robotic version of the old drug commercial. You know, where did you learn to do this stuff? I, I learned, learned it from you, watching Dad. you, Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they built this thing. They played data whack-a-mole for a year trying to fix it. Well, we'll, we'll take this gender indicator mm. out and we'll take this out. I have a very wonky perspective here, but... We are so obsessed with these perfect data sets. I guess what I was leading up to and bringing up the story in the first place is the people that they hired did exactly what they were trained to do. Right. They took the data set, they optimized the question they were asked to optimize, and they returned that result. I don't think there's any way Amazon could approach that problem in the way that they did and get anything other than the result. That wasn't an ethics problem on the part of the engineers building this. They did exactly what they were trained to do. It was a lack of vision. What's the actual problem we're trying to solve here? You know, it's a pretty fundamentally human problem. Though I do have to think, for anyone wonky enough to care who might be listening to this, that there's some better world where we're looking at actual causality in our data sets rather than these massive deep correlation networks that, you know, fair enough. If you're showing an ad, it might be okay to not quite get everything right. But if you're deciding who gets a job, who gets gets, a loan, who gets sentenced, you add in the fact that maybe a dozen companies worldwide truly control the core infrastructure of large scale machine learning. 12 companies are controlling the system that decides bail and parole and loans and jobs and university admissions and on and on and on. This may not be compatible with civil rights. Let's talk about that. So this idea that AI is or will be soon the new electricity, it'll be everywhere. Do you buy that? Oh, gosh. AI is this weird creature which is simultaneously wildly overhyped But in fact, some of its actual impact in the near future, I think, is underappreciated. One of the ways I like to describe artificial intelligence, to steer away from the technical details, which I frankly don't think matter that much, is imagine any brief expert human judgment. Given this resume, should I bring this person in for an interview? Mm -hmm. Given this spreadsheet, what's the risk of the investment here? How fast should I be going as this car is coming up on a left turn? Yeah. I mean, there's no right answer to these questions. So they're fundamentally decisions under uncertainty. And traditionally, that is a uniquely human endeavor. So now we have these systems that, particularly in really well-defined problems with a lot of economic value, can make exactly the same decision, though perhaps very much not in the same way a human would mm-hmm. do it. But it can make the same class of decisions cheaper, faster, and better than a human can make it. 
So you can see all the cases of you know computer gaming where uh, machines are beating humans. More interesting from practical standpoint, I'm sure people come across a lot of the stories about uh, machine learning systems uh, doing as well, for example, in medical diagnostics yeah. as human doctors. I mean, radiology, I think, is pretty much a dead art form um, five, ten years out from now. But it doesn't stop there. Really think about that the way I put it. Any brief expert human judgment. Think about any sort of middle class job that required probably you went to university or maybe even an advanced degree. You get paid really well. You're also a bit of a bottleneck. The whole system is held up by how many smart people with a finance degree the company can hire. Uh, or how many programmers they can get on staff, or doctors, or lawyers. And then you have a case like this uh, little competition that was run at Columbia between a startup that had built an AI to read contracts and a bunch of human lawyers. Mm -hmm. In the competition, they had to read a bunch of non-disclosure agreements and find some engineered flaws, loopholes in the agreement, and find them all. Um, Across all of the contracts, the AI found 90 Five percent of the loopholes, and the humans found 88%. Whatever. Close enough. We'll call it a tie. Yeah. They're only human after all. The humans took 90 minutes to read each contract, and the AI took 22 seconds. So, right. you know, if these are staff lawyers at a big company, the CFO is thinking, why the hell am I paying for all these junior lawyers to just sit around for hours on end reading contracts? It's busy work anyways, right? Mm-hmm. We'll keep it doesn't mean all the lawyers go away. We'll, we'll keep our top people to decide what to do about the loopholes, which, frankly, generally is nothing because most people know that they exist and they're not yeah. out. You know, It's not a knife fight in an alley with most of these companies. <laughs> That's interesting enough. What I've been told by a lot of uh, chief legal officers is a big part of their job is to train all of their junior to, to stop obsessing over this stuff and, and put the knives away because – They'll do it right back to us. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, that's what you learn in reading those contracts. As a junior, you learn how to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of stuff might go away. If the vast majority of code is not written by machines in 10 years, I will be shocked. So a designer describes, hey, I want an app. It's going to pull the, this kind of data off of Facebook. Let's use the uh, Pythonic API. I want to get people's birthdays, it should be in blue. Yeah. And the you system, give them the recipe. You give them the recipe, you describe it, and it writes the code. Five minutes later, no semi-autistic engineer screwing things up in the pipeline. The designer gets a testable app, something that can run, and then you can iterate on that. I was at this big creativity conference in uh, New York recently, and I brought up this show I'm into right now on Netflix called uh, Tuca and Birdie. So it's from the same woman who did all the design work for BoJack Horseman. Okay. So very stylized. Like it's all these animal-headed people and weird semi-psychedelic stuff going on. I, I like it. I like these silly things dealing with brutal real-world things like depression and yeah. sexual assault. And I said, imagine a very real possibility 10 years from now. Like L.A. and I'm sure New York, whole armies of people thrive on learning how to mimic her drawing style. 
and that of other animated shows mm-hmm. and you know the animated uh, Pixar just down the street from us here. Yeah. So you learn how to capture that style and then they sketch out what the scene will look like and you have to draw in all of the structure of the rest of it and then it gets shipped off to largely South Korea for reasons I don't understand and they actually do all the the detailed framework. Well, what if she could take the script, feed it into a machine, add in a couple of sketch keyframes, and it just renders right there? Wow, how empowering, right? Mm-hmm. She gets to make her show in real time, basically. Imagine what incredibly talented people can do yeah. if it's just them. I once had this curiosity. Every major economist in the world has a paper on wage gap, and they all basically say, Wage gap is because women choose not to work as hard. All right. We can set aside a lot of things. Like Mm -hmm. I've never read a wage gap paper that says anything about sexual assault or sexual harassment. And uh, you can tell what's on my mind. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so I don't know how you explain wage gap without explaining people staring at your breasts while you're talking to them, your own employees. Nonetheless, I thought that's interesting. But why? Are they aliens? Do they just literally just make different decisions than men do? I know I have my opinions about women, why women make different choices. So I built a little AI combined with a spider and it crawled through the websites of 60,000 companies. And it analyzed all sorts of data about those companies. And I found the single biggest predictor of wage gap. I mean, if it's just women's decisions, yeah. it should be the same everywhere. Yeah. And it's not, it's highly variable. So I released these, the Kraken on the world, and it crawled through these sites, and it found the single biggest predictor of this variance and wage gap is how many female faces are in the pictures of the leadership team. The more women, the lower the wage gap. Why? Because it is a women's choice. They worked their ass off, and then they ended up at that company, and they looked up, and whether they explicitly said it to mm-hmm. themselves or not, they're now thinking, why am I working so hard when it's never going to I'm pay never going to get there. You know what? That extra hour on the weekend, I'm not going to do that. Maybe raise a family? Yeah. I, I'm going to take some time off and raise right. a family. Suddenly your choices become different. That's a story worth telling, but the real reason I tell it is it took me about 18 hours to run that entire project. You can imagine what it would, 18 hours. What it would have taken an economist to have done even 10 years yeah. ago army of graduate students and undergrads going through quarterly reports who was on the board of this company one person essentially in a day was able to do all that work by themselves very empowering to me but what about all the people that would have been my students you know what Mm. are the implications of what happens there so again ai can get wildly overhyped alpha go it doesn't understand anything about Go, the very systems that I described. They don't understand contracts. They don't understand the resumes that they're reading. But they are these phenomenally powerful statistical engines that can take a set of numbers in one side and spit out what amounts to a decision on the other side. Yes or no, bring this person in for an interview. In that sense, while they might not be the sort of sophisticated entities that some people have been led to believe, they're still immensely powerful tools because something that used to be pretty much the foundation of the global professional middle class is now something I can virtually offer for free on your phone. 
the foundation of the middle class being? That elite professional judgment. If I had the chance to go to university and learn how to do this, I had a guaranteed good job for the rest of my life. Right. You know, what everyone obsesses over is, will AI create more jobs than it destroys? Well, what if it creates a whole lot of jobs that no one's qualified for? What if the jobs that are left are jobs that require you to make your own decisions, to have autonomy, to explore the unknown, to be resilient, and yet we still have a generation or more of workforce that was trained to Not do what they were at. told. Yeah. I think what comes next is a big choice. We could say, all right, I'm gonna embrace this. We are gonna focus on that vision of work as creative expression. Take any job as it exists today and imagine it as a fully creative job. Or the flip side is there's another growth area, which is a low wage power, low autonomy, low meaningfulness service industry. Because it turns out building robots is really goddamn expensive. So building a robot to pick strawberries or clean up after a party or straighten hotel room, you could do it. It's like that scene out of Blazing Saddles. I don't know whether we're supposed to enjoy Blazing Saddles anymore. All I can say is... I haven't is, seen it. All I remember is is the fart scene. Well, they, Literally, that's go. all I remember. Not the most sophisticated scene <laughs> uh, in the history of Hollywood. But for me, it's a scene that captures it and what I'm thinking of right now. Hmm. Early in the movie, Cleavon Little, the guy who ends up becoming that the first black sheriff, he and another guy, former slaves, but... Their life is hardly different. They're headed down the train track in a handcart, mm -hmm. and slowly they start sinking into quicksand. And they're going to die. There's no one there to save them. And suddenly the cowboys roll up, and Slim Pickens gets out his lasso and lassos the handcart, pulls it out, and says, hot damn, we almost lost a $100 handcart. And then they all walk away with the two black guys still sinking into the quicksand. Who wants their job to exist simply because a human was worth less than an AI? It wasn't worth the effort to build that. Well, app. so that's what's so interesting. So I was reading, uh, I was looking at some some research that the Brookings Institution did, 1980 to 2016. I don't know if you've looked at this. What has automation, internet, et cetera, done? Good news: there's 54 million new net new jobs. Bad news: they're just a lot worse. That whole middle layer that you're talking about is just kind of disappearing. Yeah. What's left is crappy, menial jobs or really highly paid. Exactly. So we create a whole bunch of new jobs. I'm, I get so tired of this. Oh, it's just like the Industrial Revolution. Even if that's a true statement, I don't think people appreciate what an awful statement that is. But it's also ridiculous. I, so you said you saw me at Milken. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, essentially, the guy on the other side of the debate was saying it's just like the Industrial Revolution, and it'll be great because you'll be able to tell your computer and it will do all your programming for you. I'm like, I don't know what version of the Industrial Revolution he's thinking of. They don't, was that Birmingham? Um, so, yeah, we see this bifurcation. You see this one side. What's the one thing a jerk like me can't build an AI to do? can't really build it to explore the unknown, to do that kind of creative labor. What if every part of your job was literally like de novo? Treat every problem as a truly new problem. 
probably sounds exhausting, but it's also this amazing contribution. I got to say, since that's kind of my job, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. We are creating jobs there. Turns out, though, that's not a terrible description of what we might call the talent wars, which is a whole bunch of elite companies around the world already are in bitter fights to get elite talent. We're probably most salient here in Silicon Valley. It's incredible here. Would be, you know, elite technical and artificial intelligence talent. Well, Google, for example, will drop huge million-dollar bonuses on people largely just to stick around out of someone else's talent pool. Somebody I talked to compared it to like, they kind of have like a very quiet Manhattan project there. They're just collecting brains. Yep. Well, I mean, if nothing else, you're keeping them from starting their own startups and possibly disrupting Google. But they might also come up with something clever or it just attracts other people because it turns out there's some real synergy there of having a lot of smart people in one place. Everyone seems to agree the future of global competition is talent. And they are desperate to find these people. I was the chief scientist of one of the first companies doing AI for hiring, sourcing specifically, finding people rather than waiting for them Mm -hmm. to come to us. And so I got to work with all of these big companies, and they were desperate. They never had enough people. So we're going to have more of those jobs in the exact same education system, the exact same hiring systems, the exact same training systems. Increased demand, but no increased workforce, unless you think humans are just widgets, like the economy demands SUVs, so we'll just retool our factories and suddenly we'll have SUVs. But it turns out humans maybe are a little bit more like movies or something. You know, we'd have a mega hit every time if we knew how to make them. But it turns out building an amazing person is incredibly hard to do. The way I throw it out to parents, and you're a new one, is – You know, if you're under the impression your job as a parent is to simply take all the busy work out of your kid's life and then they will just magically self-actualize and become an amazing person, you're going to be unhappy with the results. But that's kind of what a lot of people are selling in this this idea that AI will do all the busy work and will be released to be these amazing people. Yeah. And the other side, so we're starting to toy around with these economic models looking at concept of the this elasticity of substitution. So if you begin to substitute automated cognitive labor for traditional labor, you know, what do you see? How well does it so substitute? kind of white what collar is, versus blue what collar. What is the result? And in our work, the sweet spot in that trade-off, the presumed sweet spot is you take the either you take the best people and you make them even a little bit better, or you take everybody and make them a little bit better. But the real sweet spot is you take people that are just below the talent line to be employable. They don't really have a lot of wage power because mm-hmm. they aren't currently qualified to do the job yeah. they're hiring for. And then you give them an AI boost, and suddenly, instead of hiring a lawyer, you've got a paralegal. But with the AI, they can do all the contract work that your lawyer used to do. Instead of a doctor, you've got a lab tech. With the AI, there, you and I are three lab techs for one doctor. So in terms of your productivity model, there's your peak. And that's called deprofessionalization, taking a job – that used to require a lot of training and sophistication. Like radiology. Like radiology, and for that matter, like entertainment. What does it take to actually make a movie? So we're talking about a really broad span of professional endeavor, and then saying, hey, this would be great. We're going to democratize it, because that's the language they like to use. We're going to let everybody do this. Everybody's going to be a journalist. Everybody's going to be a doctor. Everybody's going to be... And there's some cases where that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I hacked my son's diabetes equipment. Turns out I broke several federal U.S. laws. 
Uh, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes seven years ago. And I really liked his endocrinologist, but I was frankly stunned when I saw that the way she did her work was eyeballing handwritten numbers mm. and that his insulin pump would only get updated a couple times a year when we happened to go by the hospital for a checkup. And I simply said, well, gosh, I make models of the brain. What if I did just that judgment? The one she's doing, not inventing anything mm -hmm. new, but I built it directly into his insulin pump. So that judgment happens every five minutes instead of every six months. And it turns out it's a wonder. Turns out it was the first AI anyone had ever built to treat diabetes. And Did you we, commercialize that? Oh, we gave it away. That's what I do with all of my work. That's what my company here, Soco Slab. I was going to say we haven't even we've been talking for half an hour. We haven't even talked about at all what this is. Whereas in this room we have a whiteboard. Yes. I was hoping there'd be like some really complicated, you know, notations we on there. We used but to keep <laughs> a lot of equations up there uh, just for the journalists. Um, they were real equations, but turns out I'm doing a lot of writing now. And so we right. also use that whiteboard for uh, tracking our writing projects. So can't always have equations That's up. all right. That's all right. So, you know, I started my professional career as a theoretical neuroscientist. So this is a field where we use machine learning to study the brain. We study the brain to come up with new new machine learning. In fact, Jeff Hinton, one of the, in fact, in my opinion, the reason deep neural networks exist. He's the guy who kept the neural network faith through the late 90s and early 2000s when no one else believed and developed these things called deep belief networks that were really what became deep learning, which is the modern face of artificial intelligence. Yeah. So that was our field. You know, my lab at CMU and, and his lab at Toronto, like, it was cross-pollination, that we were looking at the same questions, even though we were using different algorithms. So I was in that space. Uh, after finishing my PhD, I had a joint appointment here at UC Berkeley and at Stanford. Right. One day, my wife and I were kicking around this idea. She was a professor of education. I was uh, at the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience here. And I got a little bit of my machine learning chocolate in her education peanut butter, a reference which, if you're too young to get off this podcast, will <laughs> screw you for being young. If you don't know what Gilligan's Island is, you're not a good person. I once made a Great Monty show. Python reference to a class of students at UC Berkeley, and they had like no idea what I was talking That's about. That's very, very depressing. This is the strongest argument that millennials are bad people I've exactly. ever heard. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, so we had this idea, a way to use machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we kind of looked at each other and said, is this an experiment or is this a startup? And we thought we could run the same experiment, trick VCs into giving us the money, and actually interact with real students if we right. made it a startup. So, uh, you know, it's the Bay Area. Everyone gets uh, the religion eventually. Mm -hmm. So that was my first. I had five startups and was a, a senior executive at a couple of others. Really loved solving problems. But the truth is all of my startups had a lot more heart than they had business sense. I knew what I was supposed to do, and I had the good fortune of some success. But all I really wanted to do was solve the problem. Right. So when I was thinking of what to do next, I'm working on some books, kicking around the possibility of actually doing something in politics, even though I think my wife might actually leave me if I actually did <laughs> such a thing. 
she's stuck with me through transition, but I think uh, that Poli- might be a politics push too far. Is a, is yeah. a push too far. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Transition fair enough. is one thing, um, <laughs> but Washington D.C. that's completely unacceptable. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I'm snobby enough that, of course, uh, that's immediately what I'm thinking. It's 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 a straight to DC Supreme Court yeah. seat with no judicial <laughs> experience whatsoever or nothing. Uh, I'm far too lazy for anything short of a lifetime appointment. But what I thought in the end, a friend said, you know, you do all these crazy mad science projects uh, and you just give them away, like the one with diabetes and uh, another we did for orphan refugees. So she said, why don't you just start an institute and train people how to do it? And to quote a South African friend of mine, charge them like a wounded buffalo. So I love the idea of starting something. Let's call it an incubator, mm-hmm. a mad science incubator. But I don't really care. My life's been good to me. I, I don't really need the money. So I make a fair amount of money every year, despite the idiocy of how I spend it. And we thought, well, what if we just take ideas? Some of them curated internally. Mm-hmm. Some of them walk in the door. Dr. Ming, my son has 500 seizures a day. Please save his life. Or Dr. Ming, my company has an intractable gender bias problem. Please help us figure it out. So we do anything, health, mental health, education, workforce, inclusion, innovation itself. If it involves people, I'm interested. And if we think we could make a unique difference, we do it. I pay for everything, and we give everything away out the other end. So it's the worst business plan ever. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a terrible business plan. Uh, But it turns out it's a growth industry, helping people for free. Every year, we've got more projects to work on. Right. And the amazing thing is the good fortune of my life is every year we have more money to spend on more projects. Right. I pay my family's rent, and then we give everything else away. So this is what we spend our time working on. Uh, and it gives me one thing, which is the freedom to get up on a stage and speak my mind because yeah. I'm not a consultant and I'm not trying to sell no anyone a, a product. Yeah. I'm not even trying to raise philanthropic money. So I guess people kind of have responded to that. But it also, having been had two companies in the interface of artificial intelligence and workforce and now actively doing research in that space and, in fact, building building things in that space. What what does it actually take if you've got a half-million-person company and they recognize that this is a big problem? They have a huge professional workforce, uh, a lot of them doing uh, sort of outsourcing labor triage, and they're staring at laying off 200,000 uh, members of their workforce in India. And what I respected was, yes, I know I'm not naming the name. What I respected was they said to me, we don't want to. Help us figure out how to put value back in these employees. They went to university. They're smart. It's just they've been trained to do what they're told. And we don't need that anymore. Uh, So I respected that a company drank a little of my Kool-Aid and and needed some help. So even there, we work on it. uh, I will dive into a problem like that on my tab. Because, again, I'm still not a consultant, so I'm not going to do what they asked me to. But we dive in and we look and see, is there something we can do that make a true transformation in these employees' lives? And I will say the flip side is that's the vision of AI doing good in the world is what if we did empower people and what if we did transform their lives yeah. if they could go do this amazing creative work? The flip side is nine times out of ten, I go brief the board of a big 
company and they nod their head and say, yeah, boy, we've never thought about that way. That's just mm. amazing. And so, Dr. Ming, could you build a chatbot to replace all of the tellers of our bank? I'm like, did you not get anything I was just talking about? It's hard because I, I think a lot of companies see that there's a big change coming. But if you're not already an elite performer, then all you're looking at is wage pressure. I'm paying for a bunch of people, and let's say Tencent and Alipay are eating my consumer banking business in Asia and Africa. And the only way I feel like I can compete is to fire all of those people. I think they're dead wrong. So it's really interesting at that Stanford AI thing, and it's kind of like as night follows day, one of the presentations was on universal basic income. Yeah. I know Y Combinator, I think they've done a pilot here in Oakland. I don't know how it went. But it, uh, There's not a lot of great research yeah. uh, in this space. The most intriguing ones are the people looking at direct cash transfers in extreme poverty cases. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Bangladesh. And there are lots of positive results. But you have to understand, that is a completely different population of people and not the specific result that we're interested in. So Brookings actually had a great piece on UBI, which essentially said the problem with UBI is no one is clear on what problem it's supposed to be solving, which is to say there are many problems it could be solving. Yeah. And I totally agree with that, which is for me, I think it is a matter of human dignity that people shouldn't worry about, not in a, a culture of plenty, shouldn't worry about where their food's coming from. Uh, or where they will sleep at night, uh, or healthcare, it, it's just absurd. I'm a wonky enough person that what I then want to know is, is universal basic income, direct cash transfer the right way to solve that problem? Or on the complete far side, is it direct government services, or is there other versions? Yeah. You can have a big discussion about that. The one thing I can say, universal basic income absolutely in no way solves the future of work problem. If work loses its meaningfulness, if the only value people bring to job markets and the economy is that very thing which makes them unique. I mean, literally what makes you different is your value. In the ideal, yeah, we'll, we'll pay everyone's rent and we'll give them all food mm -hmm. and then you can all become scientists and artists. And the thing is, we don't pay artists shit anyways. So if you want to be an artist, you get to be one right now. Uh, if people were yeah. desperate to self-actualize, there'd be a line in front of every library everywhere in the world. Well, this is the thing that a lot of the discussion on AI leads to, it seems, is that the future is bright because we will be freed from drudgery and we can all go write poetry under a tree. But not everybody is a poet. Most people aren't. Most people aren't, and thank God, even the good ones are unbearable. Uh, so, uh, no, I, I don't know any poets. Thank God. No. Um, it's simply the truth. I come back to it. My whole job, my whole self-appointed, pompous, jackass job is I want to build better people. And it turns out it is goddamn hard. It is incredibly hard. And one of the main reasons it's so hard was evidenced in what I think was one of the few really interesting reports on the future of work. It wasn't a policy paper. It was a survey run by the New America's Foundation. Instead of asking a bunch of people in Palo Alto or Chelsea what they wanted the future to be, they said, pick your Chelsea. It probably doesn't matter. 
they said, you know, what does the average American worker want? Which, as you are about to hear, sounds a lot like your average French worker and is probably very similar to your average Chinese worker, which is I want a real clear set of instructions. Do I need a high school degree, secondary school? Do I need a university degree? If I get that, I want a guaranteed job for the rest of my life. I want that job to pay for a home and support my family. And I want my weekends and evenings free because I am not my job. That is not the recipe for the future of work that these people are selling. And right there, you've got a huge moral conundrum, which Mm. is – the problem with that pronouncement that that's what we want from the future of work is, well, you know what? The people that are their jobs in the best sense, I don't mean overworked, underpaid, yeah. people that are their jobs live longer. They're happier. They earn more money. From a policy standpoint, we want people to be their jobs. We want yeah. people to have a true sense of purpose and a sense of meaningfulness in their lives. And one meaningful element of that is how do you spend 40 to eight hour, 80 hours of your week every week impacting the world. And if you don't care about that time, it turns out it takes its toll on you. You know, right there from a policy standpoint, you have phenomenal challenges, but it also gets at the almost ludicrous fallacy of this idea that if we just take all the busy work away, everyone will become an artist. That's what I wanted to do with Amazon, right? I wanted to take those warehouse workers and make them artists. But the thing is, that's not a six-week programming course. Forget the fact that I'm already saying 10 years from now, programming is not a viable skill to get you employed. Which is really interesting. It has all kinds of interesting implications for this place. Oh, huge implications. But let's also point out every major future of work policy paper over the last five years – Governmental, White House, UN, UK had one, uh, non-governmental, World Economic Forum, World Bank. They're all out there saying, you know what you need to do is learn how to program. Future-proof your workforce. Well, it's really interesting. I did a, a magazine feature on the Waldorf schools. And obviously, a lot of techies send their kids there. And I was talking to the, one of the guys on the board, who's president of the board, actually, and he works for Microsoft. He's a programmer. And he's like... There's something like seven or 800 programming languages. By the time these kids get out in the world, they may all be wiped away. So the point of like, it's not, a, it's kind of learning to learn rather than learning to do this certain skill because, you know, you can argue about the Waldorf approach all day long if you want. But just the idea of it's not about memorization or learning a kind of defined set of skills, it's about learning how to think. Yeah, so we call this meta-learning, which is learning to learn, which is interesting because we use a lot of machine learning to do our work, but we track in workforce uh, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people at a time, but through our education work directly with families, we track, we're track we tracking thousands of families. Again, all this stuff we give away for free, and we're able to look at the aspects of young kids that, you know, in some sense, I, as a parent, want the most. If I'm really thinking, do I want my kid to get good grades? Do I want them to get exceptional test scores? Do I want them to go to an elite university? You know, I'm sure my wife would have some pride in having the kids follow her to Harvard, and Mm -hmm. I'd have some pride as a Californian in having them go to one of our elite schools. But 
The simple truth is I want my kids to lead happy, healthy, meaningful lives. I would trade any of the rest of that for that. What are the things that predict that? Good health, walking speed at age 65, social connectedness, central body mass, insulin sensitivity. So people have done this research. They've been doing it for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. So we thought, what if we took all that research and we put it all together sort of in one place and we could look at kids and, and adults over longer periods of time and see how, how these things predict out. So we track 50 different constructs. These have been defined in the research literature as being strongly correlated with, and in many cases, demonstrably causally related to better life outcomes. Things like resilience mm -hmm. and working memory span and growth mindset. And you could go on the list. Like I said, it's 50 things. We just kind of got bored with adding new ones. You know, we threw all these things together and we started tracking them over time. And sometimes when I try and get across this idea, I feel like in the future of work debate, if I told an investor, you know, sophisticated, economically trained investor, hey, the 10-year economic outlook is highly uncertain, what they would do is say, okay, so I'm going to put that uncertainty into my models. I'm going to diversify my mm -hmm. investments. I'm going to come up with a general robust strategy for the unknown. The unknown is information. So in this case, though, in the future of work, the response is different. No, no, no. Predict one single future and then tell me the one single skill in that future everyone ought to know. We're going to teach all 50 million school-age kids in the United States that skill. It's crazy. It's irrational. Yeah. And yet every major future of work policy paper essentially says the same thing. Teach everyone how to program. Some of them say teach them AI, again, as though that's a – I'm not even certain what that is as a skill. <laughs> and a lot, and then they go on to talk about upskilling and reskilling, yeah. which is essentially the same as let's kick this can two years into the future. And because everything changes faster, the next kick gives you 18 months and the next kick yeah. gives you 12 months. What do we need to do? What is the human equivalent of adjusting my financial models for the unknown? It turns out – and yes – I'm not deeply invested in Waldorf or Montessori or any of these things, but the spirit behind it. We want people that can deal with the unknown. We want people that themselves can deal with certainty. Why teach them what to do when instead we could create someone that could go figure it out for themselves? And it sounds aspirational, except we know exactly how to build such a person. We just don't do it. It's not what our school systems currently do. Frankly, we don't hire for that. Yeah. sort of thing, maybe implicitly in sophisticated job interviews, but really very, very little. Again, part of what we do at Socos Labs is we think, one, what would it take to transform the lives of a generation of kids, particularly kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds? Raj Chetty has this study. Wealthy kids in the lowest math quintile are slightly more likely to have a patent in their lifetime than a poor kid from the highest math quintile. What a mm. nightmare. Yeah. And there's a lot of complex reasons for that. But I just look at it in the counterfactual world. What if that top math quintile kids at all levels have the chance to make a transformation in the world? Uh, and, you know, there's sort of an old, like, concept here. You know, the kid that will come up with the cure for your child's fatal disease was just born in a favela in Rio or in a village outside Kinshasa or down the street in Oakland, mm -hmm. and they will never get the chance to live the life that allows them to come up with that cure. 
what I like to think of Raj's work is, statistically speaking, that's absolutely true. Orders of magnitude more poor kids out there uh, than there are rich, dumb kids. And it turns out not all of them get to walk backwards and to be a senior advisor at the White House. I'm selfish about this. I want to live in a world where those kids get the chance to come up with that cure because that's going to make my kids' lives better. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I was talking to a physicist the other day. He runs a satellite company here. And he has been thinking a lot about all of this stuff. And he's come up with... There needs to be now a kind of a tech-wise council, like Pugwash Conference for nukes, because he sees it as a similar kind of existential threat. What do you think about that idea? There's all these amazing things that can happen, but a few wrong turns and things can get pretty dark pretty quick. All of those amazing things are hard choices, and all the things that take us in the direction that we should be concerned about are easy choices. So guess which one people are likely to make. The easy choice is to automate away your workforce and reduce those labor costs to zero. The easy choice is to substitute for people. I don't want any of that stuff. I want hard choices. The problem is this vision that a small group of people are going to save everyone else, I actually don't think, despite anything I said at the beginning of this, that Jeff Bezos is a bad guy. I reserve comment on Elon Musk, but most of these people I come across, they're pretty much like everyone else, with one exception. They never hear the word no in their life. And so turns out there's this interesting phenomenon. If you look at activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, this is an area for a lot of learning and error control and uh, things like that. Sometimes they call one of these specific areas the oh shit circuit. Oh shit, I made a mistake. So activity in this and related regions becomes really strong when people get some error activity, but it varies in the population. So it turns out activity in this region decreases parametrically with how many years you've been a CEO. So who knew That's been studied. that being a CEO is actually a degenerative brain disease? So, <laughs> so I'm sympathetic to Eric Schmidt and uh, all the rest of these guys. Uh, they have this terrible disease, and Poor yet guys. they persist. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, 
the problem is, particularly in Silicon Valley, they all think that they're the hero in a Nine Rand novel. They all think they're doing the right thing. I'm the only person that knows the right thing. To that point, I also feel like there's a disconnection between people and data. It feels like there's an obsession with data and that you can code your way to the pr- solution of any problem. And then it's like, it's like what you see with Facebook now. Oh, so 2.4 billion people using one thing that was coded in one place, that could be problematic in all kinds of gloriously terrible ways. Oh, hmm. Well, well, we'll kind of keep, now we're playing the whack-a-mole game for eternity. Yeah, which not wanting to drag your audience into, uh, <laughs> you know, the wonk space of my feelings about this. I think that whole data whack-a-mole, I mean, here's a provocative thing because our economy, you know, the idea of pervasive AI is currently built on this idea of this global competition for data sets. Like that's China is going to beat America and because they have better access to data, which they do. What if suddenly overnight data was no longer the thing that drove this? Not massive data sets, but we really said, um, all right, what are algorithms that can take the world as it truly is and discover meaning out of that? To me, that's the big holy grail of machine learning is to move into that space. If we get there, maybe you need to worry about Skynet. But we'd have also really cracked something fundamental and moved beyond our current obsession with data sets. But to get to your, I think what you really were bringing up there is, you know, the same people that move fast and broke things and created norms before anyone really understood what was going on. And it's clear that Congress still doesn't understand what's going on. I don't even think they get 18th century plumbing yet. (laughs) Uh, There are a couple of standouts in that space. But so, you know, it's these people now want to do the same thing in the AI space. They want to do the same thing inside our brains. Let me tell you, uh, not all of them, but some of the entrepreneurs that were at that event at MIT Boy, do they remind me of the entrepreneurs I was meeting 10 years ago in Silicon Valley. The same slick hair and the same shiny suit and just, oh my goodness, I I don't want these people inside my head. Uh, Nobody does. Uh, If we don't take these things seriously, though, that's what's going to happen. They're going to move fast. And when they break things inside our head, that will be hard to come back from. So AI as a broad space technology resides maybe a little in the middle because it has way more power than just generic data being collected in social networks or online activity, though perhaps a little less than the neurotechnologies. But it's so powerful. You know, I've got to say that my fundamental problem with the way we're approaching AI right now is not simply that there's something broken in it or there's something flawed. Like... There's bias in hiring algorithms. And, you know, where do you get a second opinion from an AI doctor if everyone's using the same algorithms? And, you know, all of yeah. these sorts of questions. My problem is, but what if they all work exactly as intended and only for the interest of the people that built it? In the time we've been talking, you and I have been passed over for 100,000 jobs. We were evaluated and rejected for innumerable sets of loans. Our kids were not admitted to university. Uh, We received some extra scrutiny from the police and security. And yes, I have never had this happen in my life. But of course, one of the most notorious places is in courts, where AIs are, in my opinion, expert witnesses 
testifying against defendants in bail hearings and in uh, parole hearings, and yet you're not allowed to cross-examine them. You're not allowed to bring your own expert witness. But this might take you where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. If this problem is not that these systems aren't yet reliable, what if they're perfectly reliable, but the person who decides whether you get a job or not is Jeff Bezos, and the person who decides whether you get a loan or not is Jamie Dimon? I don't have to think they're bad guys to think their self-interest may not be my self-interest. And in that world, I want us to think hard with so many profoundly important parts of our lives turning into millisecond-by-millisecond decisions of algorithms, we perhaps need to think of AI acting explicitly and exclusively in our self-interest as a civil right, Uh, the same way I have the right to judicial review and an attorney on my side, the same way that uh, I have a right to my personal body space and people don't get to just touch you at airports, I'm clearly not traumatized, and yet I just – I can't believe it. Um, So, you know, right now we're missing that entirely, and that doesn't come to us from a manifesto. It doesn't come to us from a bunch of wise men coming together and So where does it come from? Because we started talking about Stanford High, this new thing where they're like, oh, God, we got to kind of – ethics has got to be central and all this, and we're going to think really hard about this. Yeah. And then you have Pugwash, who was like the kind of the gray beards who sit around and be like, okay, we need to – these are – this is the way we should do it. I think it's wonderful for institutions like that to have a role. Hmm. We could also think of – Something institutionally like the CDC or the WHO, but for AI and, and data, you know, they have to know this stuff, master it, love it, but also recognize where it might fall apart. So I think there's a variety of ways we could think about this from a sort of a balance of powers perspective. But one of the ones that's caught my attention the most is the idea of data trusts. Trust is a legal concept and, mm-hmm. uh, that has existed for hundreds of years. They are um, member-oriented entities that act exclusively in the interest of their membership. So what if trust existed in such a way that there was a form of public infrastructure on which they could run? You could have many, many trusts. This is, I'm, I'm just as scared at the idea of government controlling all of this. So you could have many, many trusts operating under completely different operating conditions. But they're interoperable, so I'm participating in a certain trust, and I said, you know what? And this one's like, take all you want and give me all the free stuff I can get. Uh, and another one is totally locked down. And, but much more interesting is what about the trust that can actually – Socos Labs and ACLU get together, and we build a bail hearing bot. Shows up with you in court and says, you know, Your Honor, this is why my client – should not have to put bail up at all. Uh, And here's all the reasons, which beats the other side because the other side won't give reasons. What if it went out and looked for jobs for me the same way algorithms are looking for employees for jobs? What if it could advocate for me? The thing is, I built the other side of these systems Mm. and my companies. Building this side, pretty easy, in my opinion. It's just the same thing in reverse. Yeah, I don't have a big company paying for it yeah. all, which is why we have to think about – because the, the real – I think in the long term, the real monopoly power of artificial intelligence isn't data. 
The monopoly power is talent and infrastructure. There really is only about a half a dozen companies in the world that effectively control the global AI infrastructure. And that's here, it's Google, Amazon, Facebook? Uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. Uh, some of these are just internal. Apple runs its own fancy-smancy internal stuff. Uh, IBM yeah. also does a bunch of things. Uh, interestingly, Accenture is trying to get into that space. They do it jointly with other groups, but yeah. they're trying to become a tech company. In China, it's, it's uh, Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and others. Yeah. You know, you may want to go head-to-head with a company like that in the AI space, but you're running it on their infrastructure. And they have some of the smartest AI people in the world working for them. So it won't take them that long to figure out how to, yeah. how to, to win that fight. So there are some hard decisions here. I'm just saying we need to think hard. Maybe the solution here isn't for very smart graybeards to be deciding anything for anyone else. They should get together and think big thoughts. Sure, it's kind of my job. I don't get to just wave a wand and say, this is how policy goes from here on. I should be able to because I'm right about everything. But <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the world hasn't figured that out yet. Um, I will be announcing my candidacy soon. Good, good, uh, good, yes. good. 2020 uh, or 2024? It doesn't matter. If I run, no, yeah. they'll make a special election for me, I'm sure. Um, this is exactly what this country needs is a uh, transgender mad scientist running for president. Stranger things have happened. It turns out it has. Who knew? <laughs> um, at least I'm not orange. You know, I think we really need to consider the simple fundamental truth that the real power of artificial intelligence is that it takes a huge amount of the cognitive labor done by the world and ultimately rests it in the hands of a very small number of decision makers. I don't have to idealize the working man to think, you know, maybe if groups like mine was willing to build some of this infrastructure for free, uh, and others, I assure you, would as well, uh, that we could actually balance this power out a little bit. We could take something in the spirit of the Constitution, you know, the, the original behavioral economists who put together a simple document that said people are people. They're not perfect, and a good government will be something that recognizes that. The problem is we keep ending up with these solutions that assume some hero is going to save us. We should build a solution that assumes people are people. And if we all had a substantive say, that seems like the best way to move forward. Do you ever think about kind of your life experience, was been, which has been extraordinary and different from most? <laughs> And how that informs how you think about this stuff? It most certainly does. Not simply the gender transition, although I would say this. You know, we do a lot of internships in uh, the tech industry and finance and beyond. People should do life internships. There is nothing like suddenly being a different person for a while and literally having the world treat you different. Sometimes it's ugly. Uh, sometimes VCs won't give you money because you've got long blonde hair. And people that you used to respect say, yeah, I think you lost your edge and I don't think we're going to fund your project anymore. Uh, I'd like to think the five companies I sent, founded since that statement prove just how wrong that person was. But there's good also. I remember the first day walking down the street in Berkeley as me. 
And I, I mean, first day, I feel like a gorilla in a tutu. I, I just feel so awkward. I wasn't. I lost 45 pounds, uh, you know, 20 kilo some odd of upper body mass. I looked like I had was, you know, in late stage cancer or something. Um, <laughs> I lost a lot of weight. And I walked up and there's this woman and she's like, she, she had a baby under her mm. arm like a rugby ball. And she's trying to kick open an umbrella stroller. And I'm thinking, and just, she's getting nowhere. And I think I, she can yell at me if she wants to, but I got to offer to help. And I said, you know, can I help you implicitly open the stroller? And she says, oh, thank you. And she gives me the baby. And she turns around and opens up the stroller. Right. Strange men do not get babies. Absolutely and not. Suddenly, Absolutely. Yeah, let me take take my baby, stranger. No, that yeah. does not happen. People start opening doors for you. I was like, for a while, I was like, what do you think? I'm incompetent. I can't open door. And now it's like, I don't know what you guys think, but this door's not opening itself. Not all good, I guess. But suddenly the world changes for good and bad. And you realize, wow, it, it's not a meritocracy. It's not a meritocracy simply because it is different for everybody. Uh, you can't hold uh, people up to the same standards. And also, it's not a meritocracy. Uh, let's just be crystal clear. Uh, if you've ever raised money as a man and a woman, it's not a meritocracy. Yeah. But you know, it isn't even that. In uh, 1989, I started university, and shortly after that, I flunked out. And I ended up homeless for years. And I spent time wondering homeless where— Homeless for years? Yeah. I spent time wondering where I was going to get my next meal. You know, literally, I would save up so I could buy some rice aroni. I don't even know if people know what that is oh, anymore. Oh, rice. I used to love rice aroni. Well, try rice aroni as your only as, meal. As like, your staple that would, yeah. yeah I can, that's a lot of sodium. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, there was a time, 1995, where I was just counting down the clock. I had a gun, and I was just waiting until I ended it all. Had I pulled the trigger that night, um, I wouldn't have been the only one that died. I'd just have been the only one that died that night. All the things I've had a chance to do with the second half of my life, if I can look at it objectively, are pretty amazing. Just that diabetes thing alone and giving it mm. away. My son's having a hard night. I get to remind him, someday millions of people might be alive because of you. Uh, and it wouldn't have happened if our family hadn't been the one to have this challenge. That changes you when you get to see life literally in different shoes. It, I was tired of beginner level, so I decided to do it backwards in heels. <laughs> Um, and when you see that no matter how smart people thought you are, when I was a little kid, I was supposed to win a Nobel Prize. Not like crack the whip, just like, it's going to happen. And then it all falls apart. It's your fault. And there's nobody to blame except you, although I will say in objective retrospect, like, how is someone like me even allowed to fail? Mm. What a self-inflicted wound for society. I don't think I'm that special. I think the world is full of people like me, and the vast majority of us never get to end up where I've ended up. So, yeah, it really transforms the way you look at the world. And in that sense, I don't care. I, I, I do care. I care that I'm giving away my money. This is what I want to spend my money on. I work very hard to bring in that money so that we can spend it on things that are even more important than whether I have a big house or I get to take trips around the world. And it's not because I'm special or better. It's because I have this unique opportunity to do something I truly believe in. And 
I think that's the only reason I'm still alive. And the crazy thing is all the sacrifice and, and all this uh, silly bits of chivalry is every year my life gets better. Uh, every year I get to do more and more fascinating things, more projects. I get invited to really the secretary general wants my opinion about AI policy and the globe. And of course I'll be there because I'm about my work. I'm wildly yeah. arrogant, but about me, you don't live my life and think you're special. Uh, it's hard to reconcile those two things, but that's pretty healthy. And I don't think enough people making the kinds of decisions I make, decisions that affect other people's lives, truly appreciate the stakes if they've never really been subject to them. Yeah. I had one more question. Yeah, sure. Artificial general intelligence, AGI, right. Skynet. So I'm trying to figure out whether this is complete bollocks, as the British would say, or if it's actually a, a real th thing. Somewhere maybe it's however many decades out or whatever. So going back to this physicist I spoke to, he said all the physicists, he, he's a physicist, all his physicist friends are like, ah, they're really freaked out. They do think this is a, this is like the bomb. Yeah. All the computer science people I talked to are like, autocorrect still sucks. We're a long way away. Where do we orient ourselves in that, between those two ends of that spectrum? So I will acknowledge two things. One is that the computer scientists are a little too stuck in what they're intending to build. And they don't maybe have as much perspective on what are the unintended consequences of what they're doing. The physicists, on the other hand, particularly theoretical physicists, are often fairyland of, you know, imagine some exponential growth, which works when you're talking about the Big Bang, but how about we pull in biologists here? They never see anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, ecosystems, biomes, short human rampagers and supervolcanoes are astonishingly robust. They adapt, they change. So artificial general intelligence, couple comments. One, we have invented nothing like that to date, nor do I believe we have invented the precursor technologies that will lead to it. Deep neural networks with more processing, with more data, do not become artificial general intelligence, super intelligence, as it's sometimes called, uh, or singularity, as Ray Kurzweil likes to go for. I debated him once on stage. It was a very satisfying victory. <laughs> As a computational, theoretical neuroscientist, do I have any reason to believe it is impossible? Yeah, I kind of believe the brain is a computer of a sort. And in that sense, it's a proof. You can do it once, you can do it again. For me, the big question really is two. One fairly concrete. One of the things that hasn't come up a lot in these discussions of AGI is so I said, what about biomes, where all these limited functions mm. exist? You see exponentials, but then something damps it back down. Well, there is a limited function here, which is the power and resource needs to run these massive data centers. I mean, our existing AI, which isn't graded autocorrect, requires huge energy consumption and you know rare earths and all of these things that we're slowly running out of. Mm -hmm. Do, are we absolutely confident we have enough of the infrastructure materials to actually eventually someday build out uh, you know, yes. some incredible new technology? I have a reason to say yes. Okay. We're going to settle the moon. 
and there's lots of stuff there. It, it would be incredibly exciting. And, and you know, that's one of those great... Lots of resources. I'm a, I'm a huge science fiction fan. The one thing Elon and I, uh, Elon and I agree on is I, I love his line, I want to die on Mars but not on impact. But I will say AI for autocracies, AI for dictatorship. This is something I truly worry about. Even though AI may not truly, as it exists today, may not truly understand anything. Yeah. In another sense, it knows you better than you know yourself. You want to put together a wonderful, uh, highly uh, propagandized autocracy in your country of choice. Give it the power to send every individual citizen exactly the message they need to be here to be happy with. We've already got got a little taste of that, don't we? We get a lot of that. And I mentioned the kind of felt a little bit like what I was being asked to do at Amazon. And we're starting to see what happens now, even when the irregular actors uh, get into the system and start intentionally spreading misinformation. And I recently read a DOD policy paper where they're calling it cognitive warfare. And they're saying we need to get ahead of this and we need to create a defense department that isn't about bombs. It's about cognitive warfare and preventing the war before it happens, which is a wonderful spin on it. But once you build that tool to use on your enemies, how do you not yeah. use it on your friends? It's like the uh, the flying over enemy territory and dropping leaflets. Yeah. But obviously kind of supercharged. Uh yeah, and these are the sorts of these are the sorts of things that I actually worry about. Um because there's a growth market uh for technology to keep the wrong people in power. Uh and it's being used all around the world, uh, even in nominally mm. uh, well-run governments. And it will increasingly be being used. And it is being used by companies to keep their customers happy, but in the way they want them to be happy, not the, maybe the way the customer wants to be happy. And it's scratching our nu- nucleus accumbens and getting a little bit of endogenous opioid release to keep us feeling good about a world that could be better than it already is. Even in this story, I don't have to imagine any villains. I just have to imagine someone saying, well, I know better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that simple. doesn't yeah. have to be nefarious. Uh, it, there, there's a real tendency to imagine someone's doing something wrong. Someone's making a mistake. But what if everything is happening exactly as it's supposed to happen? And all the things you're scared of are still there in your future. That's what I worry about. And that's why I want people to get up and make hard choices. I'm going to um, I'm gonna go home and just lay in the fetal position and kind of <laughs> process all of this. There's so many wonderful <laughs> things that we could do. Uh, don't be scared. Be active. Get up and do exactly. something. Exactly. Uh, You know, what I always love to say, uh, one of the constructs that we study uh, that's hugely predictive, not just of health and wealth and education, but predictive of happiness, is purpose. One of the 50 constructs we track is a sense of purpose. We use little AIs to measure it. You know what it looks for? Sacrifice. When people make sacrifices, it is the best predictor of how they would score on a survey of purpose. That's the paradox. People that make sacrifices lead healthier, Mm. happier, more meaningful lives. Except it's not a paradox at all. It turns out the world really does get better when old men plant trees. So don't go curl up in the fetal position. Go plant a tree. 
And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Vivian for taking the time to sit down. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and to give a rating and review to this podcast, which I know you have already done, but if you haven't, why not do it now? Vivian, um, you know, she gives you a lot to think about, not least this, this intersection or lack of intersection between AI and civil rights and whether those two can coexist, especially as AI kind of gets more common, propagates further into our lives and is controlled more tightly by a few very powerful companies. Anyhow, that is it for this week. I hope you have a fantastic weekend and you will hear for, from us next weekend. And if you want to read... Well, I'm sure you are Sunday Time subscribers, but if you're not, you should be, because this weekend I'm writing about something else. Very interesting. Teaser alert. Teaser alert. Anyway, have a good weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on. Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.